Hi everyone, a quick note before we get started today. If you enjoy watching the video version of this podcast on YouTube, we recently created our own channel for So To Speak episodes. You used to be able to find our episodes on FIRE's YouTube channel, and while you can still find old episodes there, new episodes will be posted to our dedicated So To Speak channel moving forward, which you can find linked in the show notes or by visiting youtube.com slash so to speak the free speech podcast. Check it out, subscribe. Now, let's get on to the show. Freedom of Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, as always, Nico Perino. In June, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion in the United States. And while many of us expected states to pass laws restricting or expanding access to abortions, perhaps less expected was that some lawmakers would seek to pass laws restricting and criminalizing speech about abortion. Joining me today to discuss these efforts are two returning guests to the show. Will Creeley is FIRE's legal director, and Nadine Strawson is former ACLU president, professor emerita at New York Law School, and in an exciting development, she recently joined FIRE as a senior fellow. Will and Nadine, welcome onto the show. Thanks so much, Nico. Great to be back and wonderful to share the platform with Will. It is an honor, Nadine, and Nico, thanks very much to, for having me here. we got a lot to talk about. We sure do. And you two recently teamed up uh, on a co-authored piece. I think this is your first time co-authoring a piece together, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But you were writing for Fire's News Desk an article titled, That Facebook Post About Abortion Could Land You in Jail If South Carolina Legislatures Have Their Way. So what are South Carolina legislators trying to do that if they have their way could have people who talk about abortion in that state in jail? Well, thanks, Nico. I'll jump in here, first of all. And yeah, that was the first time I've had the pleasure of uh, writing with Nadine, and it was an honor. Uh, I, I was joking around on Twitter that if you had told me 20 years ago, uh, back when I was a law student, uh, that one day I'd be co-authoring, 20 years in the future, I'd be co-authoring a piece with Nadine Strawson about the criminalization of speech about abortion, my first reaction would be, awesome, amazing. And then my second reaction would be, wait, what the hell happened? <laughs> what, what are we doing? <laughs> and it's that second part that we should talk about. The South Carolina bill you reference. Uh, bans uh, knowingly or intentionally aiding or abetting uh, an abortion. First of all, as you say, that's that's predictable and expected, perhaps. Uh, but what perhaps maybe comes as a more of a shock and, and is a concern for First Amendment advocates like us is the uh, inclusion of a prohibition on providing information. And here I'm quoting: providing information to a pregnant woman or someone seeking information on behalf of a pregnant woman by telephone, internet, or any other mode of communication regarding self-administered abortions or the means to obtain an abortion, knowing that the information will be used or is reasonably likely to be used for an abortion. And that includes the, the legislators really spell it out in this bill, uh, hosting or maintaining an internet website, providing access to an internet website, providing an internet service purposefully directed to a pregnant woman who's a resident of South Carolina that provides information on how to obtain an abortion, knowing that the abortion will be used or is reasonably likely to be used for an abortion. And as Nadine and I pointed out in our piece, and as you know, lots of other uh, First Amendment advocates have pointed out, everybody from Eugene Volokh to uh, Evan Greer uh, and, and around, the, uh, around the horn, 
this is a remarkably broad prohibition that really could reach far beyond South Carolina's borders to uh, criminalize a wide variety of uh, expressive uh, uh, conduct or, or p- frankly, pure expression, uh, posting about an abortion, as we indicate in the title of our piece, uh, advertising about abortions. Really, there's just any number of hypotheticals. Uh, Eugene Volokh over at his website had an interesting hypothetical where just a straight news reporting article about the opening of an, a, uh, of an abortion clinic in North Carolina that in any way could be argued to describe the abortion clinic in a way that might provoke the interest or or uh, provide information to South Carolina residents about how to go over there and, and uh, use the abortion clinic services could ostensibly fall under this this rule, and so it's uh, it's shocking in its breadth and uh, really presents some some concern and a key first test of what this post Roe post Dobbs landscape is going to look like. And it also just doesn't seem to have an understanding of how borders work in the internet age, right? So this idea of hosting or maintaining an internet website or providing access to an internet website, I just think about the local library, right, that gives access to uh, the citizens of that community, access to the internet, right? And uh, perhaps a citizen or a library visitor uh, goes to a website like that one that you hypothetically describe in North Carolina, Will, uh, and learns about abortion services in that state, maybe perhaps North Carolina, where it's not illegal um, to have an abortion. Um, you you advertise to people of other states. Maybe it's not even just North Carolina uh, uh, citizens of North of South Carolina. Um, that local library and librarian might be held criminally liable, right, for providing that access. Well, fortunately, we we now have a federal statute that everybody loves to hate, including Democrats and progressives and others who support reproductive freedom, uh, so-called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, And that is really, really important in ensuring that anybody who provides access to third-party information, including the libraries and the internet service providers, uh, social media, other online platforms, is immunized uh, beyond the protection that they would already have under the First Amendment. Uh, This federal statutory protection is designed to encourage them to allow others to post speech that might be attacked as illegal, uh, but as to which they have this statutory defense. And I think, you know, for all of the Democrats who keep, uh, in particular, who keep attacking Section 230 from their understandable frustration about how big tech is throwing its weight around, I think they have to understand how dangerous it would be right now uh, to eliminate or even substantially revise Section 230. Then there will be complete incentive on the part of these companies to bend over backwards to avoid any possible liability uh, by not putting on any information about abortion, given how broadly, over broadly the law is written. Uh, Nadine, can you give our non-lawyer listeners kind of an understanding of how laws work insofar as like Section 230, a federal statute, does that supersede any state law that uh, South Carolina might pass? Uh, with very few, it supersedes all state laws. Thank you so much for that clarification, Nico. Um, it does not provide immunity against federal criminal statutes, but uh, against state civil and criminal liability, it does. So one of the the kind of narrowing 
some of the narrowing language in that in that South Carolina bill is purposefully directed to a pregnant woman who is a resident of the, this state. So, what does our experience tell us about how that might narrow the understanding of the law, and as a consequence, uh, the First Amendment problems with it? Yeah, I'll jump in here. I, you know, I think in many ways uh, the chill is the point, right? So. Uh, you are asking <laughs> the um, the prosecutors in South Carolina to kind of take it on faith that you know you did or did not intend. And if you can have folks think twice before they uh, post something, right? Whether it's the the celebrity on his or her Twitter feed that Nadine and I describe in the uh, in the piece for Fire's website, or the magazine, or the advertiser, if you can have folks uh, stop for a second and wonder whether or not they will be punished, whether or not they will run afoul of the law. Well, then the law has already done what I think is its intended purpose, right? It's, it's stigmatized and, uh, and, and uh, uh, chilled speech on abortion just by existing. So whether or not someone uh, actually prosecuted, the, the effect I think I fear will be exactly the same. And it's a good point. I want to remember before I forget about your library example, Nico, because we know uh, in Oklahoma, uh, we already have librarians who have been warned uh, by uh, their supervisors, uh, that helping uh, patrons search for uh, things about uh, or, or information online and new library computers about abortion uh, might uh, run afoul uh, of the uh, current Oklahoma law. So the, the, the chill has already started and it's going to keep going. There, another type of law here is the one that Texas passed a while ago, uh, notorious SB8, which goes even further and might and has become a model for other states as well. Um, it, it gives bounties to members of the public to bring complaints uh, against individuals who are facilitating abortion. I can't remember what the exact language it is, but similar to aiding, abetting, and conspiring. And there, it doesn't even matter uh, whether the abortion actually takes place or not. There uh, are financial incentives for successfully bringing to lawmakers, law enforcement attention, um, somebody who's uh, in violation of the statute, and there's no disincentive. Um, Even if you have a frivolous complaint, there are no possible sanctions for you under the law. I want to ask the question that's probably at the top of mind for a lot of our listeners and not bury it too far into this conversation, which is, okay, South Carolina passes a law banning all or most abortions, which I don't think they've done yet. Uh, But let's say that they, for hypothetical purposes, do. Abortion is now a crime in the state. And many states have laws that um, uh, criminalize facilitating criminal conduct. So if you are helping someone find an abortion, whether it's in-state, where it's legal, or out-of-state, where it is legal, um, in the eyes of South Carolina, you might be seen to be facilitating criminal conduct. And you two address this head-on in the the article, saying there is some doctrinal tension between speech advocating future lawlessness, uh, which is general protected, and speech that facilitates imminent criminal conduct. Um, And you point to some uh, decisions by past courts upholding uh, convictions, for example, for posting bomb-making instructions online, publishing a how-to book about contract killing, and mailing recipes uh, for PCP. Now, I think for a lot of our listeners, they don't really put abortion in the same category. Uh, maybe some do, of course. Uh, there are many conservatives who believe abortion is murder, but for the past 50 years, it has been legal in the United States and held to be a constitutional right. Um, 
how how do you address those concerns in this context, uh, both culturally, where there's an expectation that this sort of thing isn't criminal, um, but also legally, where if you open the door to make kind of an abortion exception for facilitating criminal conduct, uh, how does how do the neutral principles then apply to bomb making instructions, how to books about contract killing and mailing recipes for PCP? Not saying you guys agree with those court decisions, of course. Maybe those were overbroad and wrongly decided as well. But I think that's the question at the top of the mind here is abortion is now criminal. If you're helping someone get an abortion in this state, um, why are you not held criminally liable as well? Well, as we point out in the article, there are two strands of case law here, and I'm going to uh, exercise my seniority to choose to describe the one that is more speech protective, and then I'll defer to Will to uh, explain the countervailing strand, because one of the problems that or challenges we have in First Amendment law is that a lot of decisions that coexist with each other our intention with each other at best, or sometimes even in outright conflict. But uh, from the pro-free speech perspective, I would want to strongly stress the 1969 unanimous landmark Supreme Court decision in Brandenburg versus Ohio, an ACLU case, I'm proud to say, um, in which the Supreme Court said that nobody can be held liable for inducing either lawless or violent conduct by somebody else, unless a number of very strict requirements are satisfied. The speaker has to intentionally incite, and the court uses the word incite as distinct from advocating, imminent lawless or violent conduct that is likely to actually happen imminently. So if one could make, a, I think, a very plausible argument that that should be the tough standard against which South Carolina or other state laws are judged, and they do not rise up to that demanding standard. But unfortunately, there's another line of cases which uh, Will will tell you about. Yeah, that's right. And and I like that uh, that approach, Nadine. And I, I'm I'm Pro as a free speech advocate, that is the, the line of cases, the doctrinal uh, line of cases that I would sure hope would prevail here. The other uh, countervailing uh, line intention here is the uh, carve out for speech integral to criminal conduct, and that's what you're describing, Nico. The uh, the bomb making instructions, the instructions about how to make PCP or angel dust, the instructions of uh, provided in a book uh, about uh, how to be a contract killer, how to hire a contract killer. Courts have found that that kind of instructional speech that is, quote unquote, integral to criminal conduct uh, may be prohibited without running afoul of the First Amendment and have distinguished Brandenburg. So to give you the glass half empty view, that is out there. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we stand at a, a crossroads here. And as you, you astutely note, Nico, abortion, quote unquote, feels different, I mean, not only because it's constitutionally protected for 50 years, but because it's such an intimate uh, individual, personal medical choice. Uh, it feels uh, qualitatively different than uh, hiring a hitman, which I would still posit that that case is wrongly decided by the Fourth Circuit anyway. So I want to be, be clear about that. So that's the choice here. And uh, when we were writing the article, Nadine and I had a very uh, instructive and, and useful back and forth about it, where I've, I've been carrying around in my head for weeks, Nadine, because I think you're right. And, and my wife thinks you're right, too, by the way, uh, that I'm being too much of a pessimist, right, that I <laughs> should should uh, should forge ahead uh, with with an optimistic and uh, 
and inclusive and fulfilling version of the First Amendment ahead, which is that the First Amendment protects this kind of uh, speech about uh, medical decisions. And as you usefully pointed out in our writing process, that the uh, conservative wing, the pro-life wing of the court, uh, has itself identified uh, very important reasons to keep the government out of medical decisions, to keep the d- government out of dis- the discussions between a, a patient and a doctor uh, in the uh, so-called uh, crisis uh, pregnancy center uh, question uh, with regard to uh, whether or not counseling uh, to keep a baby uh, should be free from Uh, government interference. As I think you noted earlier, Nadine, there's been a push from progressive senators uh, to regulate that kind of discussion. Uh, And in a recent Supreme Court case, we we had some clarity on on the the validity of those kinds of regulations. So this is a a complicated one, and uh, we'll be (laughs) be making the argument that uh, we should have a hands-off government approach rather than a a hands-on here. Well, let me now throw in a sobering note. I won't call it a pessimistic note. Uh, Well, first, the positive is that all of the cases that both Nico and Will referred to uh, were decided by lower courts, uh, either federal trial courts or federal circuit courts of appeal. The U.S. Supreme Court did not um, affirm any of those, to the best of of my knowledge. Um, But here's the sobering note. that justices all across the spectrum have had a very uneven record when it comes to free speech and abortion. And there is a pattern that if they favor the state law, um, uh, they have one view on free speech. I mean, whether it substantively advances or retards the pro-choice or the pro-life movement, respectively, uh, seems to differentially affect the free speech analysis. So way back in 1991, it was the conservatives on the Supreme Court who were um, anti-Roe versus Wade. It was still the law of the land, but really dramatically cut back on free speech in a case called Rust versus Sullivan, in which they upheld a federal law that literally barred doctors and other healthcare professionals from giving any information about abortion at federally funded family planning clinics, even if a woman expressly asked for information about abortion, there was a government mandated script that had to be recited. Uh, Quote, and I still remember it after all these years, this clinic does not believe that abortion is an appropriate method of family planning, close quote. And uh, that is the most uh, egregious form of offending the First Amendment to go beyond barring somebody from expressing uh, information, conveying information, and in the health context, particularly troublesome, but to actually have a government-mandated script, what we lawyers call compelled speech. In all other factual contexts, you know, that all of the justices, including the conservatives, would be saying, you know, we can't imagine a circumstance that would allow the government to do that. And yet in the service of 
the anti-abortion cause, uh, they upheld that. So I'm a little bit, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and in fairness, uh, you know, I have to say this as somebody who is both pro-choice and uh, pro-choice with respect to speech, with respect to what we do with our bodies, just, and I see the connections there uh, between those rights. I very much dissented from the liberal justices who upheld what I thought were uh, excessive and constitutionally unjustified restrictions on anti-abortion demonstrators in the vicinity of abortion clinics. Um, in that context, Justice Scalia and other conservatives uh, coined the phrase abortion distortion that they said was being used to warp First Amendment principles that would generally apply. But now I, I, I fear that we may see the same kind of abortion distortion, but in an anti-free speech when it comes to speech that would facilitate abortion coming from the conservatives. Nadine, where do you come down on the case that Will was referencing earlier, the uh, Nifla v. Becerra, I think it was a 2018 case involving the constitutionality of California's FACT Act? I think that was a really um, complicated case. And so that said, uh, to me, it's not clear what the correct answer is. I'm cu- curious, did Fire file a brief in that in that case? I doubt, doubtful because it was before our expanded mission, but the California FACT Act, for those not familiar with it, mandated that crisis pregnancy centers in California provide certain disclosures about state services. And then Justice Thomas uh, famously said that throughout history, governments have manipulated the content of doctor-patient discourse to increase state power and suppress minorities. So you could you could see how um, you know the shoe on the other foot side here is you could criminalize. Uh, advice or conversations that doctors might have with patients in places, for example, like South Carolina, if the bill were to be passed, recommending or even just giving information to a South Carolina resident saying, hey, in North Carolina, abortion services are available. Um, that could be a that could be a criminal act and would seem to go against kind of the, the thinking that Justice Thomas had in 2018 involving crisis pregnancy centers in Nifla v. Becerra. And I would say, you know, the, the factual, comp, the devil is always in the details in these laws. And um, there were multiple provisions in the law and allegations that they were designed to prevent misleading information, which I think we would all agree government should have power to uh, to regulate, especially in the healthcare context. But I, I, I'm just not familiar enough with the facts to know whether the, uh, they satisfied that standard or not. Well, I do want to ask, uh, so that South Carolina bill that we were talking about before uh, is based on a piece of model legislation from the National Right to Life Committee. Uh, which it's promoting across the country. So the the idea that the South Carolina bill will remain in South Carolina, I think, is sort of wishful thinking. Um, often these model bills are adopted by legislatures and legislators uh, across the country. Um, and in that model legislation, and I was just looking at it and preparing for this con- podcast, instead of using abortion in this, these kind of speech restrictive clauses, it uses illegal abortion. So for example, it says, knowingly or intentionally hosting or maintaining an internet website, providing access to an internet website, you'll you'll recognize this all sounds very familiar to the South Carolina bill, or providing an internet service purposely directed to a pregnant woman who is a resident of this state that provides information on how to obtain an illegal abortion, knowing that the information will be used or is reasonably likely to be used for an illegal abortion. South Carolina, they cut out that word illegal. So it seems to implicate speech uh, or legal abortions 
in other states such as North Carolina, for example, and therefore, in kind of my mind, seems even more unconstitutional. Uh, but I, I'm interested in hearing what you guys think as to whether this statute or this model legislation itself, using that word illegal to qualify abortion, uh, makes it more tricky from a constitutional uh, First Amendment perspective. Well, I'll, I'll jump in here and take a first cut at it, and then I'll be curious for what Nadine says. My my sense is that that is a, a you know you could read it broadly, right, to say any abortion is is inherently illegal under our laws, no matter where you get it, if only you're one of our residents. But I don't think that's. I think what uh, James Bopp, the author of the uh, NRL, NRLC uh, model legislation, is trying to do is narrow that so that the law only applies within the state to the act the abortion that the state uh, legislators have criminalized. I, I, that's what I, my guess is. And I, I think I saw somewhere in this piles of email uh, that visit my inbox daily. I think I saw some comment from Bob saying that that was his intent. So I, I think that he, what, what the NL, NRLC legislation is trying to do is tee up exactly the kind of uh, doctrinal fight that Nadine and I were just describing. Um, that's my guess, but we shall see. Right, because again, under the Brandenburg test, as the Supreme Court expressly said, even advocacy of illegal conduct is constitutionally protected. And but ironically, uh, so that's where it drew the distinction between advocacy and intentional incitement. And in fairness, the um, facilitation cases or integral to criminal conduct cases that Will was describing earlier uh, were very fact specific. And the lower courts in those cases did find a factual context that uh, went beyond merely providing general information. Um, and 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 they uh, that instead there were efforts to induce and incite um, and 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 directly assist particular people with actually violating the law. So um, if I think even consistent with those cases, if you have um, a journalist or a librarian or some even you know a clinic that's putting general information out there, not targeting particular individuals no record of trying to induce particular individuals to violate the law, uh, they might be home free under both sets of cases. Yeah, that's a great point, Nadine. I like that. That's an excellent, excellent point, right? Just as you say, those cases involve targeted speech, a particular individual to do a particular thing, and everybody knows what's going on there. Here, right, if you write the New York Magazine article, how to obtain an abortion or how to self-administer an abortion, and you send it out to your subscribers nationally, and some of them happen to be in South Carolina, are you similarly, you know, criminally liable? Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. So, right, I, I, I endorse that view wholeheartedly. Before we get too far afield, Nico, I want to make sure that but to Nadine's excellent and illuminating point about the abortion distortion and its lingering effects, uh, it's fascinating to see when we were considering the protests outside of Justice Kavanaugh's uh, residence uh, in Maryland following the decision. You know, of course, we go back to uh, a case, uh, Frisbee v. Schultz, a 1988 case where the court votes six to three uh, to uphold uh, a city ordinance against the constitutional challenge. Uh, the ban picketing in residential areas. And what's fascinating in that case is the facts there involved anti-abortion uh, demonstrators uh, protesting outside of 
uh, a uh, an abortion provider, a doctor's house, right? So you just see how <laughs> these things turn. And you know, I always uh, in teaching these summer uh, undergraduate interns, I always try and not to become too much of a cynic, too much of a legal realist to say, well, really, <laughs> what we're doing is uh, effectuating the policy preferences of the justices. But boy, you know, it's awful tough, right? So our job here as free speech advocates is to say, well, remember what you said then, and stick to it now, right? It does not matter whose ox is being gourd, the principles must guide you. So that's our our mission, and we have chosen to accept it. (laughs) And we were talking about James Bopp, I think, is at least as well known for leading the charge on a free speech rationale quite successfully against campaign finance restrictions, where he has an extremely broad concept of free speech. I happen to share it, but most liberals do not. Uh, And yet in this context, he has a very uh, different concept of free speech, although I'm sure he's uh, very strongly supportive of free speech rights of uh, anti-abortion demonstrators. And so, you know, I say that not at all in a sense of, you know, we're better than that, but just uh, we have to be very, very careful that we don't fall into what is a a clear temptation. I I also wanted to say, um, Nico, that there's a long history of connection between restricting reproductive freedom and restricting speech about it. Uh, the infamous Comstock laws that were passed at the end of the 19th century and uh, continued in force into the 20th century, uh, people, I think, mostly know them as outlawing so-called obscenity or pornography, but those were the very same laws um, that outlawed the distribution of contraception and, and, and any information about contraception. So I do have to say, you know, I, there have been a lot of attacks recently, including in the libraries and public schools uh, on so-called pornography. And this is something that, that could be weaponized, at picking up on the historic tradition that information about sexuality and choices about uh, sexual intimacy and reproduction can get swept up in that kind of um, uh, sensorial crusade as well. Will, do you want to add anything to that? I know, uh, not to reveal your bookshelf, but I, I know you're reading a book about Victoria Woodhull right now that you're uh, fascinated with. I tell you what, I, I finished it uh, a couple months ago, and it was. I'm going to recommend it. I've been pitching it to everybody because I, I at times when I was doing the dishes, I was listening to the audio book, and my wife would come in, and all of a sudden she'd be in the kitchen for 15 minutes just gripped by it. It's uh, Amy Soane's uh, The Man Who Hated Women. Uh, I think the subhead is Sex, Civil Liberties, and censorship in the Gilded Age. And I really highly recommend it. There have been a lot of great books dealing with Comstock recently. And Nadine, of course, is absolutely right. Uh, Amy Warble's book, uh, Bob Corn Revere's book. I know both of those folks have been on uh, this show. And I I commend everybody to, uh, to read Amy Stone's book. I commend it to you. Uh, as well, because it's it's uh, gripping and the resonance of it. As I was reading it, Dobbs comes down, and the resonance of it is just striking. The parallels are amazing. Well, who is Victoria Woodhull? Well, I think there are many of our listeners who probably don't know who she is. Well, she should be the subject of a major motion picture. I'll tell you that much. She's just got an absolutely fascinating story. Her and her sister. Um, uh, Tennessee just have just this amazing, almost Zelig or Forrest Gump-like uh, travel through um, uh, Gilded Age America, where she at one point she's running for president. She's the first woman to open her own stock brokerage. She's an incredible uh, advocate for 
um, uh, suffrage, uh, free love, birth control. I mean, I, I won't spoil it for you here, right? This could be its whole other podcast, but I just will say that when you see, think about Margaret Sanger, you think about Emma Goldman, you think about Ida Craddock, the women who were jailed, and the men, frankly, too, uh, who were jailed for advocating for birth control. You see, just as <laughs> Nadine says, this is a, a sadly rich tradition of criminalizing uh, expression about sex. I was just at the Woodhull Freedom Foundation last week, and as I told the folks there, uh, speech about sex is the canary in the coal mine. It's always the first on the chopping block. It's the uh, the the elusive but irresistible target of censors for years and years, right? Uh, so this feels very familiar. It's an old fight, and I think a righteous fight. Can I just ask, because this is a, one of the cases that you bring up in your guys' article about Bigelow v. Virginia, because we talk about the speech that's integral to facilitating criminal conduct. And then we also talked about the example of someone providing abortion services in the state of North Carolina, if South Carolina makes abortion illegal, advertising those services and perhaps getting wrapped up in one of these laws that restrict uh, speech about abortion within the state of South Carolina, understanding, of course, that we live in the internet age uh, and sort of cabining your, the access to your website within state boundaries is, is fairly challenging as uh, countries such as Russia and uh, China have found out over the years. But can you guys talk a little bit about this Bigelow v. Virginia case? Because I think it makes it very clear that advertising abortion services in places where they are legal is very different and very much a clear-cut First Amendment, uh, First Amendment protected activity, even if it is commercial speech as opposed to political speech, which traditionally has received a little bit less protection under the First Amendment. I think that's a very powerful precedent for challenging South Carolina and similar laws, um, especially because abortion was still illegal in Virginia at the time. And the court relied on concepts of uh, not only free speech, but also federalism, which is an important theme, another important theme here where conservatives are usually very much in favor of federalism, right? And the court talks about uh, one state uh, not being able to wield its power over conduct that is occurring in other states, i.e. if citizens in Virginia went to New York to obtain an abortion that would be legal in New, New York, there's no way that that conduct could be punished, let alone information that is provided even within Virginia by a Virginia newspaper editor in that case um, to, um, to Virginians. And the court was very concerned about the potentially um, speech suppressive impact in, in, in a similar way to what we were talking about earlier, that the law clearly went beyond simply instigating or facilitating facilitating a particular person um, getting an abortion, a particular Virginian. And it talked about the great public interest in information about abortion, including the fact that it's legal and what on what terms it's available in other states, that it was important information for people within Virginia who were specifically seeking to reform the anti-abortion laws in Virginia. And I think what's particularly striking about that case and makes it a really strong precedent now, Nico, is this was really the first time that the court protected what it called commercial speech. Um, it had a lot of language and even holdings in earlier cases in which it was treating 
advertisements, which this clearly was for products or services as entitled only to a lesser degree of free speech protection. And obviously the court felt so strongly about the importance of information uh, about this subject of public concern and political dispute. And Roe versus Wade was just being decided at that time. So constitutional debate, just very analogous to the times that we're in now, that it even for the first time, strongly protected commercial speech. Yeah, the court held that Virginia may not, under the guise of exercising internal police powers, bar a citizen of another state from disseminating information about an activity that is legal in that state. And the facts of the case, Nadine, as you allude to, involved an advertisement carried uh, in a newspaper, uh, which led to... um, someone's conviction for a violation of a Virginia statute that made it a misdemeanor by the sale or circulation of any publication that encouraged or prompted someone to procure an abortion. I want to so, uh, jump in there, Nico, and, and recommend that everybody read a, an article by the great uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown over at Reason. And uh, she did some reporting on in, in writing about the First Amendment battles yet to come, everything we're talking about here. Uh, and she pointed out something that I didn't know about Bigelow, that Bigelow was a student at UVA uh, at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, underground newspaper, right? So he's a student when all this is going on. And, and I want to, if he's, if he's out there, <laughs> say thank you for standing up and fighting uh, like so many of the great students you work with at FIRE, uh, because that can't have been easy to do. And uh, as Elizabeth Nolan Brown reported in Reason, uh, going back to the old AP reports from July of, of 71, Bigelow was fined $500 and, quote, with $300 suspended on condition that the newspaper, the Virginia Weekly, this underground newspaper, which is distributed from the UVA campus, refrain from running abortion referral ads. And that part made it even more shocking, right? We're going to find it 500 bucks, but if you shut up about abortion or you stop running those ads uh, about the uh, the women's pavilion in New York City, then we'll lessen it, right? I mean, that's... That's as plain as it gets. So thankfully, a great 72 precedent. And, uh, and, and yes, I think a very powerful uh, guide for uh, our way through the, the present thicket. Yeah, it was a 1975 case. So I imagine he, and I hope he is, still around. So if there are any of our listeners out there who uh, want to do some internet sleuthing or perhaps know where he is, I'd love to have him on the show. Get him on the show. Jeff Bigelow, oh, give us a call. Great. Right on. I'm not, I'm not outsourcing my work here as a producer of this show, but by all means, if someone wants to do my work for me, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. And I would, of course, give you a shout on the show. Uh, but Nadine, I mean, what are some other concerns surrounding a speech related to abortion that you're seeing happening right now? I know there's a lot of concerns by uh, tech companies, apps, social media companies about how they might be implicated in this sort of um, sweep of abortion-related speech? Well, there have been a lot of reports about um, big online platforms, Twitter, um, Facebook, and so forth, uh, taking down both speech by the, that leads to complaints by pro-choice people and speech that leads to complaints by pro-life people. Um, and in fact, uh, in the last month, there have been competing letters sent by a group of a Republican and Democratic um, members of Congress to these companies um, complaining. Uh, the, first of all, the Democrats complained that uh, to Google that if it 
does, if you do a search for information about abortion using various Google tools, uh, including Google Ads and its general search function and Google Maps, that they have some evidence or reports that um, show that a substantial percentage of the responses uh, that come up in, uh, point to what they call fake uh, clinics, uh, so-called pregnancy crisis centers, uh, and they complain that that is deeply dangerous to women who are seeking abortions and think that that's what they're going to be getting and don't understand that uh, they will instead be um, deterred from uh, from pursuing the abortion option. And so uh, the Democrats uh, basically demand that Google uh, take down, either uh, refuse to provide links to those um, crisis centers or else at least put some kind of heavy warning that this is misleading information or misinformation. Uh, whereupon that led to a group of Republican senators and members of Congress writing to Google and complaining, making exactly the opposite assertion. You know, if you dare to change your search results or to put up any kind of warning label, um, we're going to see that as um, an infraction of free speech. And, you know, it, without any sense of irony, um, the Republicans, I think, I think they're both guilty of, of inconsistency. But uh, since the Republican letter comes second, they are able to complain about the Democrats and, and they complain about, you know, members of Congress and public officials throwing their weight against against uh, uh, tech companies and pressuring tech companies and how inappropriate and inconsistent with the First Amendment is. And then in the very same breath, what do they do? They throw their weight and say, you know, and if you do capitulate to these demands from our Democratic uh, colleagues, then we're going to institute an antitrust investigation. We're going to look into, you know, taking away your Section 230 immunity. And, you know, we're going to look into other kinds of, of, of we're going to look into treating you as common carriers and subject you to intense regulations. So um, the tech companies are really coming under um, competing pressures here. And it's not, I, 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 therefore, it's probably the worst of both worlds for all of us in terms of free speech. Nobody, neither of those groups is saying you should continue to, you know, post whatever information uh, is consistent with your own search standards and algorithms uh, for determining what's responsive to what users are looking for. Nadine, can I actually ask you, and Will, sorry, I just want to cut in because I'm just curious, Nadine, for your position, because I don't think we've discussed it on the podcast previously, but, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, you, there are social media companies that are taking down speech related to abortion uh, on all sides of the issue. And I just wanted to get your kind of perspective on how you think through social media companies doing that sort of thing. On the one hand, they're, they're private companies. They can create their own terms of service. They can apply uh, their uh, editorial standards inconsistently, even if they wanted to. Uh, but on the other hand, I think most Americans, to the extent they have direct experience with the general non-legal concept of censorship, uh, they see it on social media. And so they see it as censorship and uh, are frustrated by it and so I, I, I want to say, I, I just want to, I'm just curious how you, how you kind of think through that kind of cultural, but also legal question. 
it's a deeply complicated issue for exactly the reasons that you so well articulate, Nico. And I agree with you on assessing what the problem is. And I really am uh, flummoxed as to what a potential solution is. And I, I'm in very good company because people I deeply respect who work full time precisely on that issue. Not a single one of them, to the best of my knowledge, has you know, firmly committed to here's a way we can navigate respecting all the free speech and first, uh, you know, free speech concerns, right? Because even though it's not a First Amendment issue per se, in so except it is a First Amendment issue insofar as the companies have this First Amendment right. And I would deeply oppose any heavy-handed government moderation or you know a regulation of their content moderation practices but uh, i think we have to find some way to also allow the flourishing of free speech for everybody else who is dependent on using these powerful sites and i was about to say that to the best of my knowledge people who are studying these issues full time haven't really fixed on a solution for reasons I respect. They say this is so complicated. There are so many unintended potential adverse consequences that the most we can do is suggest these are paths that should be considered. You know, we should consider a potential antitrust approach. We should consider a potential common carrier approach. Um, I, at the very least, uh, what I do support uh, enthusiastically is, you know, massive uh, increases in transparency so that at least we have information about what algorithms are being used to determine what is being directed at us, because now we don't even know. I think most people have the illusion that we're uh, making choices ourselves without the understanding of the extent to which the information is being pre-screened and, and driven toward us. In an but idea- even that that poses some First Amendment concerns. If they don't, I mean, if they don't do it voluntarily, right? With the idea that code or computer code can be speech, and the reason. TikTok uh, is eating Facebook's lunch right now is because their algorithm is uh, more tailored and more sophisticated and serving up content that's more relevant to users' interests than Instagram's algorithm is, for example. Uh, we know that firsthand here at Fire. We produce a video uh, that'll go gangbusters on Instagram, but not TikTok, or that'll go gangbusters on TikTok. We'll just had a, uh, had a video go viral on TikTok with something like 315,000 views and like 48 72 hours. So congratulations on that, Will. But the algorithms are different, right? And presumably they'd want to know what those secrets are. So you can only be so transparent on that front. But in the meantime, the modest proposal I'm making is just urging these companies, I mean, the way members of Congress are urging them to engage in various kinds of uh, restrictions, I'm just urging them to please not do that, to please exercise their power in a way that will facilitate individual freedom of choice about what information we receive uh, on this important subject, whether that includes crisis pregnancy centers or whether it doesn't should be up to us as individuals uh, to decide what to look at. So I think we've got to wrap up here. Um, We're at about 45 minutes, but I did, I did just want to add that this speech related to abortion, while we've talking about speech that might be from uh, a liberal in many cases uh, in this context, it, conservatives should care about this issue as well. Um, we have a case at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill right now involving a, an executive order from the student government there uh, cutting off 
funding to quote any individual business or organization that advocates for pro-life causes. And you could imagine that Students for Life at the University of North Carolina was very concerned about this. So we wrote into the school and just got word today. Today is what? Tuesday. This podcast will go live on Thursday. So the news will have broken by then um, that the general counsel and the executive branch there said that no student groups will be discriminated against based on viewpoint. So we got a fairly quick win there, but it's just, it's uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, so, you know, you, and you restrict speech of uh, pro choice advocates. It's could be the pro-life advocates the next day, uh, as we've seen so many times. Oh my goodness. Let's look at our case archives. We've got plenty of them. I mean, we have so many instances of uh, pro-life speech being censored on campus. Everybody, every censor thinks they are in a righteous fight, right? Every censor thinks that, no, this time I've got it right. And boy, our, our case archives are replete. I remember uh, pro-life anti-abortion groups setting up um, miniature crosses on campus as an improved uh, art installation to make their point about uh, the lives of the unborn uh, and those being trampled by vigilante student censors overnight who, you know, say, I do it again, et cetera, you know. We've got a lot of this. So, right, as you say, good for the goose, good for the gander. Uh, be nice if everybody would disarm and recognize <laughs> not changing anybody's mind this way, right? It's not, this is not going to ultimately result in, uh, in, in your view of it prevailing, right? I don't think you can censor your way to societal uh, acceptance. And if you did, you wouldn't like it, right? Then we're in uh, Barnett, uh, coerced unanimity, just gets the uh, the unanimity of the graveyard kind of territory. So yeah, we've got lots of cases like that and they're all depressing as hell. So I, I would recommend folks who wield the hammer of censorship today to consider what it's like uh, when you're on the receiving end. And we say that even if, you know, there were no censorship and fire went out of business, I think we wouldn't mind, would we? <laughs> no, we wouldn't. Well, that's always been our goal. <laughs> Harvey, Harvey uh, Silverglade and uh, Alan Charles Kors thought maybe five years, right? They, that would that would wrap it up. But then I had kids. I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I could see that censorship is this old human impulse, right? Shh, quiet down, Daddy. <laughs> so I think, okay. It lives anew. Every time you got two human beings together, one of them's going to say, you know, buddy, would you just knock it off? Well, I think we got to leave it there. Uh, Will, Nadine, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk and hope to talk to you, you both again sometime very soon. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure and honor. Thank you both. That was Fire Legal Director Will Creeley and Fire Senior Fellow Nadine Strawson. They are the authors of the essay, That Facebook Post About Abortion Could Land You in Jail If South Carolina Legislators Have Their Way. And that essay is linked in the show notes and can be read by visiting thefire.org. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by visiting our YouTube channel, which is new. We used to host video versions of these conversations on Fire's YouTube channel, but spung it out. And now, So To Speak has its own YouTube channel, which can be found at youtube.com slash so to speak the free speech podcast. We also feel feature a link to the video version of this conversation in the show notes. But you can also find us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle free speech talk or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. Email feedback is welcome and appreciated at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you happen to know where Bigelow is, uh, please send him my way. I'd love to have him on the podcast telling his story. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They help us attract new listeners to the show. Also take reviews on Spotify, which is helpful. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>